0: Turn with me in the Word of God. Psalm 48. just so happens as I was looking at Psalm 46. Last time I couldn't help but glance over and notice this psalm. And I remembered I've never expounded it before. So I thought it would be a great time to look at one of the most precious psalms, uh, which speaks of the joy of the church. Psalm 48. You might notice the title, at least in the New American Standard, The Beauty and the Glory of Zion. I'm going to ask you to stand right here or wherever you are, in order that we may show a due reverence to the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and errant word of the living God. Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it, then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish her forever. Selah. We have thought on your loving kindness, O Lord, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise unto the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces, so that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. For the reading of the Word of God in Psalm 48, I snuck in a little something there to get our thoughts already tracking with something that's kind of a challenge in Psalm 48. It's not a bad challenge; it's in fact a good challenge. But it is a challenge in expounding and accurately interpreting Psalm 48. Is decide upon what is this main focus? Is it Zion, or is it God? It's not hard for us to grasp hold of the struggle here, because it's fairly evident, even on a, just a surface reading of this particular text, you'll notice this steady alternation between talking about Zion and talking about God. And so sometimes the headings, which are not inspired by any way, I mean the headings, not the titles that are a part of the psalm, but the headings sometimes can get it wrong. And here, I want you to notice, at least in the New American Standard, It makes the title or the heading of the song The Beauty and the Glory of Zion, as if the song was about Zion. Now there's no doubt that this song is about Zion. It surely is. But the substance that makes Zion glorious is not Zion, but Zion's God. And one way we're able to decide what is the main point of this psalm, is it about Zion or is it about God, is taking note of its structure taking note of the linear unfolding of this psalm. So I can sketch it out fairly quickly here, the very opening of it. Yes, it does have a focus on Zion. Then it pivots and looks towards this confederacy of rebel kings whom the Lord squashes with the breath of his mouth. And the next thing you know, the people of God are standing in the temple inside of Zion, reflecting on God's glories. And then from there, the Psalm draws everything to sort of head and it says, stop and think, look around you, walk about her, note her towers and ramparts, think upon what's being said here. And then it brings the Psalm to a powerful and impactful punctuation like conclusion in verse 14. Four signaling to us that whatever follows after is highly significant as the psalm is brought to its conclusion. And I would have you know the spotlight here isn't Zion. It's Zion's God. It is Zion's God. You see, the more you begin to reflect on this psalm through the lens or filter of verse 14 as it unfolds in this linear fashion, you begin to see that the issue here isn't about the glory of the church, even though that's an an important sub-theme and highly significant to us. The substance and the main point of this psalm is about the God of Zion who reigns there and blesses his church and makes it a fortification. And so one way we can conceptualize of of the movement in the psalm, and think about this psalm as we work our way into its powerful conclusion, is to see that it's something like a virtual tour. It's something like a virtual tour of the city. You see, in these opening verses which extol the glories of Zion uh, so powerfully, it's as if Zion is being presented to the mind's eye. It's not as if the the worshiper is standing right there. It's beholding it from afar. And then in the very next section, as you come into verses 4 through 8, you see another reframing of this virtual tour and its perspective. And this time, it's a different group of people who are... um, who are engaged in the virtual tour. It's the rebel kings of the earth who from a distance and not with the eye of faith are looking upon Zion and they are overwhelmed with its glory to the point it makes them fear. And then as the virtual tour unfolds in verses 9 through 11, it's now as if in victory formation and parade, the people of God are now standing inside the city streets and the temple of Zion. And now they reflect upon how in the very tapestry, how in the very stones, how in the very structures and formations of the city, a story is told. And that story is about God. The city is a mirror which reflects The glory of God. And then from there, the psalmist calls upon the people of God, now outside of the city, at a vantage point, to look down upon it, to walk around that vantage point, and to take it all in so that they can proclaim the great message of it all. That message, again, is found in verse 14, 4. You see, the very grammatical structure of the text tells us that those verbs in verses 12 and 13, walk, go, count, consider, tell, they all find their basis in what? God. And who he is for the church. Calvin has a brilliant insight here as he says, That faith's property is to set before it a distinct knowledge of God, so it won't waver. Faith's property is to set before it a distinct knowledge of God, so it won't waver. That, people of God, encapsulates the theme of Psalm 48. Not the glory of Zion, but the glory of the God of Zion. And he is set forth for the church so that we see the benefit of the glory of God to us. That's what we want to think about as we work our way through now. Psalm 48. We're going to look at it in two parts. The greatness of God on display and the greatness of God for his church. And that is not so much a second point, but really our point of application. But to really... Uh, unload all of the theological message of that psalm off uh, at the second point. We have to have everything before us here that comes in these first 13 verses. And what you have here really are a series of displays. A series of displays of the greatness of God. Now, we don't have time, there's 20 people of God, to go through all of them. We just don't. And so what I'm going to do is spend enough time on each of them So that we grasp the point to see how these all fit into each is sort of like a piece of the puzzle, which frames a a, a glorious picture and presents to us this distinct knowledge of God so that faith doesn't waver. And we see, first of all, then the greatness of God displayed in Zion. We can't go through every part here, but we should begin where the psalm begins at least in verse 48 where it says, great is the Lord. It begins with a sweeping declaration about God. And many commentators say that the very position of this psalm right after Psalm 47 means that it's responding to the substance of the psalm prior to it. And you remember there in Psalm 47, a psalm which we sing regularly in our worship, extols the greatness of God. It speaks of him as being the Lord Most High, who is feared, who is the great king over all of the earth, who subdues the peoples and the nations under the feet of God. He is the God and the king of nations, and he sits upon his holy throne, and the shields of earth belong to him, and he is highly exalted. And many have noticed what seems to be almost an inseparable connection between the Psalms, because as the praises fade out, or at least the the extolling of the praise of God fades out in Psalm 47, they're taken up in the form of praise in Psalm 48. Great is the Lord. This is the response to the proclamation of the glory of God displayed in Psalm 47. But one of the things that we appreciate so much about Psalm 48 is even though it initiates the psalm, and the entry point of the psalm is is a proclamation of the greatness of God, it it doesn't track along the plane of the abstract. It's not as if we're sitting in a philosophy class and speculating about the greatness of God in the abstract. Instead, what Psalm 48 does is it leads us to appreciate the greatness of God in the concrete. And I concede it's a bit of a play on words because literally, it's the concrete. It's the brick and mortars. It's the structures now that the psalmist turns to to expound the greatness of the glory of God. And it's very evident to us the very way verse 1 is formed. Great is the Lord in the city of our God. It's as if Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem, is a medium or a platform for putting on display the greatness of the Lord. And that gets cashed out in a series of statements here. We don't have to spend a lot of time on any of them, just enough to see what's going on. What is this greatness of the Lord in the concrete? Well, you see here as you read on in our text that it's the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. Let's just take that little chunk right there and begin with it's his holy mountain. The meaning is that God has made the mountain which... Zion in Jerusalem sets on. He's made it holy by his presence being identified there through the Ark of the Covenant. He's made that place sacred space because it is there in Zion that God has determined to place his name in that Ark, which is the great symbol of his presence and of his dwelling in the midst of his people. And because he's consecrated this mountain for himself, it's called beautiful. And it's ironic and even humorous because Zion's a molehill. We can look out the window from where we are and see mountains that are three and four times taller in elevation than Zion. It's not its vertical height that makes it glorious. What makes that mountain glorious is that God is there. And then it makes another sort of laughable statement when it says, it's the joy of the whole earth. Well, at this point in redemptive history, barely any of the nations knew of Zion, and if they knew of it, they weren't reverencing it. it. Certainly wasn't joyful to them. But you see, the expression is the expression that comes through the mind's eye of faith. It is the confession of the people of God about what Zion represents and will be. It will be the joy of the whole earth. Isaiah the prophet speaks of it like this, it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains will be raised above the hills and the nations will stream to it and the people will come to it and say, come, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us concerning his way, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, the statement is made from the perspective of faith about what God intends for this place. And what he intends for this place is that it will become the joy of the whole earth as the very Son of God becomes incarnate there and secures the foundation of joy in his cross. We know, having read the New Testament, that's precisely the place from which the gospel began to stream over with its channels and tributaries to the scope of the whole earth. Zion truly did become that place where the law and the message and the preaching and the gospel of Jesus Christ went forward. It's a spiritual promise. It's the city of the great king. It's the place where, after David stormed its citadels and fortresses from the Jebusites and wrestled out of their hands, he made it the place of his throne. And by making it the place of his throne and bringing the Ark of the Covenant there, what happened is God identified his kingship with David's by the visible and tangible dwelling of God in the presence of the Ark. There with David's throne, what it made is Christ, the king of Zion. And so the glory of Zion is that Christ dwells there. His kingship, his throne is established there. And then we have another blessing or glory of Zion. It's indwelt by the Lord. We're told that God is in her palaces. And that's not just David's palace. It's a reference to the large and expensive buildings in the city. And it's a way of saying that the prosperity of Jerusalem has been secured by God. Its wealth and its prosperity, which is reflected in its skyline, its structures and large buildings, is an indication that the blessing of God rests upon it. He dwells in her midst, and here's the punchline of it all. At the end in verse 3, he's made himself known as strong. I want you to see, people of God, that the issue here already that we're seeing in Psalm 40 isn't, 48 isn't about Zion. It's about Zion's God. The thing that makes Zion glorious is what is disclosed. And the thing that is disclosed is the greatness and glory of God. That word stronghold is a metaphor which is descriptive of the Lord in his power and his might and his sovereignty and his kingship and all kinds of attributes and qualities and characteristics. The point is to say that Zion is blessed because the God of Zion dwells there and he's disclosed himself in the very fabric and the stones of the city. He's stamped upon it the glory of his name. The city is a reflective mirror which shines forth with the goodness and the glory of God. His greatness is displayed in Zion. The second thing you see here is his greatness is displayed in military conquest. So we come back to our idea of this virtual tour, which seems to be how the psalm is unfolded in a linear type fashion. We said that the city of Zion is presented to the mind's eye of faith, something to be held from afar, And now, as we come into verse uh, 4, it's still being uh, viewed from afar, but this time through very different eyes. This time, it's through the eyes of the rebel kings, which you see about here in verses 4 and 5. For the kings assembled themselves, and they passed by together, they saw it. See that? It says those kings who assembled together for war, they took hold of the sight of the glory of Zion because of God's mediation of his presence there. And well, we learn of their panic. Who these kings are and what situation this is, we don't know for sure. There is uh, one narrative in 2 Chronicles 20 which may well be... uh, expressive of what's going on here it happened in the reign of jehoshaphat when he was attacked by moab and the sons of abban and the munites and the upshot of the psalm is that they began to worship god and call on his name and they went out to the battlefield and it turned out after uh, they uh, engaged in a lot of holy fear they woke up to notice that all their enemies were scattered and gone and so the text there tells us that they worshiped there and then A procession of worshipers, including Jehoshaphat, went back and they stood in the very temple of God and lifted his name up in praise, which is exactly what you have as a part of the virtual tour here in our tech. Now, I'm not sure that that's the occasion, but it doesn't need to be that occasion. The point of it all is to speak to the glory of God displayed in the preservation of his people. And so notice here the panic of the great kings, and it's spelled out in a series of verbs of panic. Notice it says, they were amazed, which means stunned surprise. They were terrified, which speaks of a state of fear that causes trembling. They fled, which speaks of moving quickly because of alarm. You see, as they took measure, as they saw the shields of God surrounding Jerusalem, they fled in panic. And then we have an image of panic. Panic seized them, their anguish. As of a woman in childbirth. The panic of a woman with child who was not expecting to give birth. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, out of nowhere, here comes delivery. They panic, as if gripped and seized with fear because of the unexpected. But the heart of this is not the king's. It's with the military conquest of the Lord. Look at verse 7. It says, with the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. It's kind of interesting here because the ships of Tarshish seem to be smuggled into the text in a bewildering way because we were reading about kings and now we're reading about ships. And I think it's just a metaphor put for these kings and, and this rebellion. I think one of the reasons perhaps why ships of Tarshish is used here metaphorically is because of the means that God uses to destroy his enemies. Notice here it says, with an east wind he shattered and broke them. And that verb is powerful. It means to smash in to pieces. But you see here, I think the picture is apt because the kings, we can imagine, were full of bluster And big talk as they gathered together and as they assembled bands and hordes of conquering armies and kings with all of their military muscle and might. They must have spoke powerful and strong words to encourage each other and thumped on their chest and and spoke of their bravado and how they were willing to do anything short of death to take that city. And then the images of God destroying the Confederacy with a mere breath of his mouth with the east wind and the heart of it all is verse eight as we have heard so we have seen in the city of the lord of hosts in the city of our god god will establish her forever the greatness of the glory of god disclosed is his power and faithfulness in being a protector for his church it's a promise God will establish her forever. That's the promise. But in order to seize on the strength of the promise, we need to reflect upon the preface to the promise. The preface to the promise is is, is significant. Notice here, uh, as verse 8 opens, it says, As we have heard, so we have seen." See, the psalmist here is giving voice to the community of believers as they are expressing something that is new to them. As we have heard. It's it's a poetic way of saying, yes, we've been hearing people tell us about the great things of God. We heard our our fathers tell us about wonderful deliverances. We've heard our grandfathers and our our great-grandfathers. We've been told that the traditions and the stories that they are telling have been passed down from one generation to the next. But it's all been talk. We've heard it. You see here what the psalmist does by moving from as to so. He is testifying to the new conviction of the church. It's not just talk. It's not just about what God has done in the past. It's what God is doing right now, which we have seen with our own eyes. It's the experience of deliverance and the divine smashing of the ships of Tarshish with the mere breath of his mouth that renews and invigorates the faith of the people of God. And one of the things that the people of God learned as a result of what they have seen and not just of what they heard is that God doesn't change. See, that's the underlying premise. That's the underlying principle that's involved. That's the theological issue at stake. It can happen that the people of God get bored listening to the same old stories. Well, they've heard about the reformers. They've heard about the Calvins and the Luthers and the Knoxes and the Zwinglies and all the great heroes of the faith who did tremendous exploits that felt like they were all walking on water. And we've seen nothing since then but a church decimated with division, strife, false doctrine. You see, on uh, some hand, it's something that we're familiar with. Oh, We've heard about it, but what have we seen? psalmist proclaims that the seeing is ever present to the eye of faith because God doesn't change. There's no expiration date to his promises. Whatever God has said, God will do. That's the point of this. It's speaking faith into our ears this morning Is this is not to be our mentality. Oh, we've heard about it, but I want to see the proof. The proof is in the nature of God. He doesn't change. His promises will never fail. and the thing that is spoken to the church is it will never perish. It will be established forever. Nothing will ever steamroll the church and stomp it into the dust. People have tried. The kings tried of old under the Caesars. The Counter-Reformation sought to snuff out the doctrines of grace. Secularism has invaded the walls of the church and done everything humanly possible to underline even the smallest shred of faith in the supernatural and in the scriptures. But the church still stands. And the reason it stands is not because a lot of good people were there standing at the entry point with swords and shields and fighting back against the attackers and marauders. The reason why the church stands is because of Christ. He made this promise. God will establish his church forever. That's what Jesus said. Peter, I build my, rock up, I build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against us you see the preface to the promise matters because it teaches us about the undergirding principle God doesn't change His word doesn't fail he performs his promises and so it's a call to look upon this great promise with renewed faith and know that as often as we experience the deliverance of the Lord no matter how small they may appear to us they are They are the time for us to renew faith and to know that the promise that's expressed here thousands of years ago is still for us today. But now the psalm transitions from the greatness of God displayed in military action to the greatness of God displayed in his attributes. And we come back to our idea of a virtual tour. And now I want to show us here, as you come into verse 9, that the people of God have come now into the city, at least By way of reflection, we have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. Now they're talking about where they are. We're standing right now in the midst of your temple. Our feet are right here standing upon the stones in Jerusalem. And they're looking upon all that's around them with these fresh new spiritual eyes. And now everywhere they turn, they see the city is alive with the testimony of the glory of God and displayed his attributes. And so here the psalmist says, as he's thinking upon God in the midst of the temple, as he's reflecting upon it with all of its splendor and external beauty, its worship, its sacrifices, its ceremonies, the thing that stands uh, before his attention is this this, um, source, this fountain of every grace. And it's a simple, single word, chesed, loving kindness. This is the fountain, Calvin says, of every grace. The streams of mercy, he says, flow down from us, and they are traced up to the fountain of God's loving kindness. You see, as he looks upon the provision of God in this dwelling place of that tabernacle temple complex, he says what it spells out to the believer is the abundance of God's mercy, of his loving kindness. Streams of mercy are flowing down because of the abundance of loving kindness. He moves on in the next verse to speak of God's righteousness you see here, as is your name, O God, so is your praise. As we're thinking about that, the name of the Lord is the expression of his character, and of his qualities, and that name of the Lord has been put on display before the kings of the nations in this military conquest. And so as we read this in context here, we see the name of God is disclosed in the works of God, which bear the imprint of His attributes and what the nations begin to do, even though they don't do this out of belief, is praise. God extorts praise from these kings and these nations because they couldn't help but speak of his power. And so the thing here that the psalmist now isolates in reflecting upon this powerful Military victory is your hand, your right hand is full of righteousness. The right hand of God is what he uses to deliver. The right hand of God is what he uses to show his power. The right hand of God speaks of God in action. And as he looks upon this action, this military conquest, the psalmist says, that is the righteousness of God at work. That is God defending the just and holy cause of his people. He's righteous. He's unfailing to the integrity of his being, which means as he has covenanted to be the God of his people, he is the protector of his people. He's righteous. Verse 11, we have judgments. Let Mount Zion be glad that the the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. You see, the rejoicing of Zion here is probably the priests and the Levites ministering and worshiping at the temple with sacrifice and song and choir and harp and lyre. The daughters of Judah could either be the towns of Judah, the smaller towns, or it could literally be the, the women of Judah as they receive back alive their husbands and sons and family members who'd gone out to the battle. And the rejoicing now because of the work of the lord which is described here as the judgment and once again read in the context the judgment must be the action of god the word here means literally to execute wrath a sentence and that's what he's done as he struck down the confederacy of rebel kings And so doing, he disclosed who he is. He disclosed his glory. He disclosed that he's that stronghold which inhabits the palaces of Jerusalem. And so the very city itself now becomes a medium for the contemplation of the God who inhabits it. He's a God of loving kindness, he is a God of righteousness, he is a God of judgments, he is a God who prevails. That brings us now to verse 12, where the psalm really engages us in what's going on because now the virtual tour takes the worshiper outside of the city to behold the complex of it all once again. And it calls all of us to action. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, walk through her palaces. It's a command. It's in the plural. It's for the people of God. It's for you. And the calling here is to make observation of the whole of Zion with all of its principal parts. To count it. That is, to take inventory of everything that's in the city and everything that's in the church. And then notice the payoff of it all. Think. Think. It says, consider her ramparts. And you know, uh, if you have a very literal translation, what you'll have there in verse 13 is, raise up your hearts. That's what it says. Raise up your hearts to the rampart. To reflect with the eye of faith upon the ramparts, and the ramparts are the fortifications and the series of, and layers of military defenses, which all constitute the shields, the divine shields of protection. And the psalmist here calls upon the people of God to look at them all and to think and to see to themselves, what does this say? And the reason they're to do that is so that they can fashion an intergenerational message hope you all have a so that the last of verse 13 there. if you don't my translation has that but it's the same thing it's so that what was the reason for this call to the people of god to gather on the slopes and examine the sea from afar off and to take note of its principal parts and its fortifications and its structures and all that's there. What was the purpose of it? Why were they to count? Why were they to think? Why were they to draw a lesson? It's so that you may tell the next generation. The victory was not just to be rejoiced in by the people who observed it, The victory was to be rejoiced in from one generation to the next because it said something to the people of God in every generation all the way down to today. This is our God. We need to really lay hold of and treasure and appreciate those words. The next generation. What would it do for the church today to grow as large as the sands on the seashore only to never pass it on to the next generation? It would mean the church dies. We've been caught up in a frenzy and a madness today of who can build the biggest church. It's wonderful to desire to see The fullness of the kingdom come right now. But the people of God are not entitled to simply look at today. They are to always operate on two horizons. Today and tomorrow. The duty of the church is spelled out here. The means of the preservation of the church. Not just today, but to the next generation. To your children and your children's children. And to their children it comes in a particular way. Comes as we walk about Zion, as we go around her, as we count her towers, as we consider her ramparts, as we go through her palaces, as we think upon what it all means and view the story of God's protection and preservation of His church. The means is that as the people of God learn to walk by faith and trust in the Lord and rejoice in his deliverances and his provisions in Jesus Christ day after day. We are being armed and equipped with a message to tell, not just to people today, but to the next generation. It reminds me so much of those words of the Lord as he spoke about Abraham and why he would disclose this thing which he was about to do. He says, I'm going to do it because I have chosen him so that he will command his household in order that I may bring upon him everything that I have promised. The promise is that the nations will be discipled to Christ. That promise isn't apart from the means. The promise isn't apart from parents taking up the duty to catechize and to teach their children. Young people, when you gather around that table after dinner for devotions and family worship and for singing psalms and reading the word, you need to know it's time for you to listen. You need to know this is a blessing to you, that you are being raised in a house that fears the Lord. And that God is already reaching for your heart today. He's showing you his love and his mercy and his kindness right now is you're being told about God and the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the wonder of his mercy. <clears throat> I know when I used to sit in church as a young boy I confess I picked a lot of wax out of my ears as disgusting as that sound. But I learned something. That refined worship is serious. It's solemn. And when God speaks, he speaks with authority. He speaks in truth. He speaks in love. He speaks with an aim, which is to draw souls to himself, to lift up Christ. So those who hear will come to know what mercy means. This is what our young people are learning. This is what you parents are passing on by making sure they're in church and not children's church. Great lessons because the next generation must be told. That's what the psalmist says. As we experience the daily grace and deliverances of God, we are being equipped. Just as the psalmist speaks of here with a message, to fashion, and tell to the next generation. Don't despise catechism. Well, we come to the point of application here, which is really our second point, and we're positioned at a great place because as we have taken this virtual tour, we are ready now to lay hold of the powerful, punctuating application And again, people of God were positioned to see not just the greatness of God's glory on display, but the greatness of God for you and for his church. And the entry point into laying hold of that is that first tiny little word in verse 14, for. I've already told you this. It signals that what follows forms the basis for why the people of God were commanded to walk about Zion and to go around her and to count her towers and to consider her ramparts and to go through her palaces and to tell it to the next generation. Why? What is the lesson to be learned? What do we draw from all of that? What is the basis for this duty? It's bound up in what comes next. In another tiny little word. This. Not that. Not another. Not something else. But this God. And in reading Psalm 48, no one has a loss to to understand what the God is who is referred to here under this God. It is this God who's the great Lord, who is exalted in praise, who has consecrated Jerusalem as the holy mountain, who dwells in the palaces of Jerusalem and discloses himself as a stronghold, who breaks and smashes the ships of Tarshish with his word. Who is the Lord of hosts. The warrior king. The one who establishes the church forever. The one who reveals himself. In his mercy in the temple. His righteousness and judgments. In defending his church. That's the God. Let no one. Be at a loss. We know exactly. Who is being referred to. This God. And no other. And notice what this God is, our God. Isn't it worth it to hang on in exposition sometimes? (laughs) I took you through a lot. We waded through some deep waters, didn't we? But it's all worth it so you can understand now what is meant. This God is ours. I wonder if we can even begin to wrap our minds up. We're not spiritual orphans. We're not rugged individualists. We're the children of God. By grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who's made us. He is the one who sent his son to become incarnate, to redeem us, to win our salvation on a cross, who has regenerated us, who has called us, who has cast faith in our hearts, who has justified us, who has adopted us, who sent forth his spirit into our hearts, this God is ours and we're not alone. Our world with all of its bluster and phony confidence is full of lies and vanity. We are a culture awash in nameless faceless individuals who seek after belonging and they can't find it. They seek identities and political ideologies, social groupings, materiality, jobs, titles, groups, who are great at making sure everybody belongs to some group. Why? Because of the vanity and the emptiness of our world. But that's not you this morning. You're not in search of an identity or a belonging. You have it. This God is yours in Christ. Psalm 48 speaks of the glory of Zion. But it makes the glory of Zion about Something other than Zion, it makes it about the glory of God who's in Zion. And that God with all of his glory has made you his. And the next thing that the psalmist says about this God and what he is for his church is he's our guide until death. He's our guide until death. He's a powerful guy. He is the great Lord referred to in verse one, the one who smashes armies and ships with his breath of his mouth. He's a protective guide. He is the Lord of hosts, the great warrior king who is there to guide us through the battlefields of life and spiritual struggles and to protect us from all the slings and spiritual arrows of the kingdom of darkness. He's perpetual. It's until death. What is the world around us? What more than anything this morning? I think it's what's on their face in the form of a mask. Safety. This psalm says, your safety is in the Lord. He is your guide unto death. Oh, it's wonderful to look upon Zion's glories. We love the church. It's beautiful in elevation. It is the joy of the earth. But what's even greater is the God of Zion the great Lord and what he is for us. Come back to that great comment of Calvin. Faith sets before it a distinct knowledge of God so that it won't waver. The psalmist has set before you this morning a distinct knowledge of God so that your faith Won't waver. Did you come in here this morning wavering? It's okay if you did. I won't judge you. (laughs) My faith goes up and down every single day. There's lots of wavering. So if you're weak like me, join with me. Lay out this picture before you of distinct knowledge of God great, exalted in praises. The one who indwells the church, who discloses himself as a stronghold, a mighty warrior and king, who, in the midst of all of that great power, is just as characterized by mercy. That's our God. That's the distinct knowledge of God set before us. And as you look upon that with even the tiniest little seed or shred of faith, you can be sure that God will take that and make it so your faith doesn't waver. Father, we thank you for a beautiful text. Old words. Made new. We've heard the words and now we've seen them. Lord, may you use these to cultivate an ever deeper faith that's full of conviction and joy. We are those who are to rejoice in the beauty of Zion. We do because Zion brought us the message today of your favor towards us in the Lord Jesus. So help us to take whatever faith we have and to run out to Christ as he has set forth in his mercy and power here. Lord, that he's our savior. He's our great Lord. As we do that, Lord, would you cause us to be firm in faith, exalting Christ in praise. Hear us for his sake. Amen. Amen.